Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, contending with child homelessness in the city as that population grows. And a conversation starter in the form of poetry about male survivors of sexual abuse. Hi, I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford, who's out with the flu. Ashley, we warned you, you warned you on this show, the flu season's not over. Well, get well soon, we miss you. But I am joined today with Brick TV senior producer Ro Johnson to talk about an eventful week and weekend, both in the city, at Brick, and in the borough. Let's start uh, hyper, hyper local within yes. these walls. You guys won some awards <laughs> at the Emmys. We won some uh, New York Emmy Awards. So um, the first one, I guess, would be our um, former um, director of photography, our DP, Chris Raditz, covering the Brooklyn Slam poetry team. And he won in the category of arts. We also won um, in the category of entertainment program feature or segment, bed Veterans and the Evolution of Bruckup, and that was Charlie Hoxie, our senior producer, and Yasha Callback. And so one of the ones that I was part of this team and I'm very excited about is the um, category in education or schools, mm-hmm. a program or special. And um, it was a class divide breaking the pattern of school segregation. It was a Be Heard town hall. These incredible town halls are produced by Megan Donis, who is our editorial director and Be Heard executive producer. The last one for Brick TV was in the category of societal concerns. Mm-hmm. And Steve DeSev, who sometimes works on this show, but he's all around, all about town with Brick TV. Um, He did a piece, A Cop Watcher's Tale, Mm -hmm. El Grito to Sunset. And then Brooklyn Free Speech got got one for their media share program. It was a very exciting weekend. We partied hard and um, we were all very proud of the entire team. And if people want to see any of these, they can go on the Brick TV website to check them all out. I recommend they do that. So let's talk about um, what's going on in local politics. I was going to talk about national politics, but I don't want to talk about Trump. I don't want to talk about Comey. I don't want to talk about P-tapes or P-brains. Um, But so Cynthia Nixon was endorsed this weekend, the Saturday. By the Working Families Party. By the Working Families Party, which is a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. It is. So what have... What have you What have you read about that? Um, I've I've read a lot, and uh, it's interesting. I I would think that this is pro- possibly the worst case scenario for for Cuomo. I think he will probably win the primary. Right. You know, um, there but, are, are parts of upstate and western New York that are just far less yeah. progressive than some of the you know more urban cent- centered areas. Um, but if that's a line in on the on the ballot, it could cannibalize the the, the left vote. Come the general election, yes. if she stays on the ballot. If she stays on the ballot, the general election, right? Yeah. it could open the door for the Republican challenger, who we're not even sure who that yeah. might be yet. Definitely. Um, and also, there was another development that seems somewhat related, which was the the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, which we've talked about a lot on this show, mm-hmm. finally decided again that they're going to reintegrate with the Democrats and caucus with the Democrats. They're the ones, of course, who have been caucusing with the Republicans even though they've been elected as Democrats, giving the Republicans the legislative majority. But now they're reintegrating, which is, okay, that's news, but are they really going to do it? And why are they doing this now? Is this... Not sure that they're def- that they're definitely going to do this. Um, they get a, there's a lot of perks that come along with um, you know being in the IDC. You know there's a lot more money. There's a lot bigger staffs for the for the people who are part of the IDC. So I don't know if they're going to be willing to give that up. Strategically, uh, you know Cuomo is the one that pushed this when Cynthia Nixon announced her 
her run, mm -hmm. and it would benefit him to unite the party, right. you know, especially, and to be perceived as mm -hmm. more progressive than he has been in the past. He's been right. considered so, more of a centrist. So he's trying to steal a bit of her thunder. I guess we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. I just want to talk about one final thing before before we go. Um, this, this tragic death this weekend in mm. Park Slope, terrible, tragic news yeah. of this... Um, the LGBTQ rights lawyer, yeah. uh, David Buckle, who was also an environmental activist who, who self-immolated mm -hmm. in Prospect Park on Saturday morning, early in the morning, leaving a letter saying basically he was despondent over the direction that we're going as far with regard to environmental conservation, that people aren't making sacrifices, the sacrifices that we need to be making, and he, he made the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's really disheartening, especially he was someone who is in power to make change, you know, he was uh, a fierce advocate for LGBTQ rights. He was um, a, a legal advocate for um, environmental rights. So he was somebody that was on the forefront of change. And I hope his memory, you know, goes towards making those changes. His family, um, in, the, in the, I think, in the New York Times, his family. Um, is quoted as saying he was, you know, really distraught over the overall state of politics, and I, I think it can wear on us with such a con in, in such a contentious environment. Right. I think he wanted this to be a statement to really energize people to say, "Listen, we, we've got to do something now." Yeah. And this was his, I guess, final and very um, emphatic and very tragic statement. David Buckle um, sent a statement to local media about what he was about to do. In it, he wrote, most humans on the planet now breathe air made unhealthy by fossil fuels, and many die early deaths as a result. My early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves. Uh, Buckle was also a, a, the lead lawyer on the case of Brandon Tina, the transgender man made famous by the movie Boys Don't Cry. He lived near the park where he self-immolated uh, and worked on composting at the Added Value Farm in Red Hook. He used to also work with the LGBTQ civil rights organization Lambda Legal. Uh, we have a former co-worker of his from Lambda on the phone, General Counsel Haley Gornberg, to help us remember uh, David and his legacy. Uh, Haley, thank you for joining us today on what is a tragic uh, day, a tragic weekend. It truly is. I agree. Yeah. So um, you you two worked together a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about David and what you thought when you heard about his passing and how it happened? Oh, I was absolutely horrified. It's truly a tragedy. I, I think we all were. I've been hearing from people all weekend and into today yeah. who were uh, touched by him and um, just absolutely devastated by his death. Right. I worked with him for five years at Lambda Legal, and he was intensely committed to justice for LGBT people. Hmm. And uh, he worked on everything from hate violence, hate crimes, to marriage equality, student rights, the right to go to school as a young person and not be bullied or harassed, hmm. just a broad swath of LGBT justice. And, and as uh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, as is not unusual in our lawyers and advocates and staff at Lambda Legal, but it, it's not unusual, um, and it also certainly just shined forth in him. Uh, he was all in. He was emotionally connected as well as professionally and intellectually connected. I remember talking with him about marriage equality work at one point, and he told me that he had stopped 
attending weddings because the discrimination in marriage and uh, what that did to the families we represented and to his own family was just too painful. So he was a man of very deep feelings and convictions as well as deep intellect. So, Hallie, Hallie um, I know you didn't work with him on his environmental activism, um, but he, he definitely specifically rep, uh, mentioned that in, in his passing. And I'm wondering um, what did you experience with him when you were working with him um, at the food co-op, the Park Slope Food Co-op, because that's a pretty um, environmental, environmentally conscious place. Absolutely. I think that a lot of people at the co-op are responding and reflecting and that his commitment to healing the environment and addressing environmental degradation resonates throughout that co-op community, which is upwards of 17,000 people. And uh, I last saw David at the Brooklyn Food Conference, which was a sustainability conference about urban agriculture and access to healthy food and protecting farmland from environmental toxicity and farm worker equity. So I know that that was extremely important to him and then obviously reflected in the work that he was doing at the composting project. Wow. Well, I mean, it's such an, um, you, know, you know, it seems like for, from someone who was so empowered and seemed to do so much and accomplish so much that this is a surprising a kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it a capitulation, I mean, but he felt in the end like that what more can one do and this must be, this is the ultimate thing that I can do to send a very profound message um, that we need to act, that we need to act on this issue, on all issues, but specifically on this environmental issue, um, but feeling despondent uh, that not enough was happening and in fact we were going in reverse. Yes, I, and I actually have been... Uh, speaking with people who have expertise in, in the area of suicide uh, today as part of, sort of helping support colleagues and friends and people who knew him who are reaching out. And one of the things we've been talking about is um, how you can never truly know the full extent of why. Sure. So he expressed some of why in what he left behind, but we really cannot know all of why. And um, I can say from knowing him that he was a person of such deep commitment that I think he never felt that enough had been done. Uh, he did a huge amount, his colleagues here and composting and other environmental work as well as Atlanta Legal did a huge amount. and. I think David always knew that there was more that needed to be done, and he felt that very deeply. So, Haley, um, I have one quick question. What are the plans, you know, for his circle of friends and colleagues moving forward to to really um, elevate uh, his his interests and and make sure that his death wasn't in vain? Uh, many people have asked me that today, and and I think it's coming together. So, I I actually don't have a final answer. For you on that, it's just um, it's too new, and um, obviously he has he has family and other folks who maybe make those plans. So I, I'm not 
a source for that information right now. Right. Well, well, we'll we'll keep um, we'll keep try to keep up to date as best we can on that, and try to keep our audience informed and follow this story, and hope not to let um, David's light uh, and mission die out and continue continue the words um, and the work that he has done. Um, Haley Gorenberg, thanks so much uh, for uh, for joining us today on this on this very sad day and this sad time. Uh, Haley Gorenberg from Lambda Legal. Thank you very much, and thank you for the for that and for shining a light. Thank, thank you, Haley. All right, take care. Bye. Upcoming segments on the show today: We have an organization that seeks to empower homeless children in the city, uh, and a musician and author will talk about his book of poems that addresses masculinity and the trauma from sexual abuse. Stay tuned. Approximately 24,000 kids will spend tonight in a New York City homeless shelter. Many other children without permanent housing sleep in cars, hotels, or sofas of friends and extended family. When they wake up, they have to find their way to school. They face stigma, trauma, and uncertainty. Our next guest runs an organization dedicated to enriching the lives of these individuals. She's the executive director of Dare to Be. We invited her on the show to tell us about this largely unseen and underserved community. Roxana Colorado, thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you so much for having me here. So, so tell, me, tell me about Dare to Be. What, what is it, and how did it come about? Dare to Be is an all-volunteer organization dedicated to equipping and empowering homeless children to break their own cycle of poverty. Hmm. And it started just through our own experiences, seeing the disparity of children oh. um, between low income, and it was just not realizing the kind of homelessness that did exist, that it wasn't what everyone envisioned, mm. which was lazy people or drug addicts, that there were families behind it all. Right. And we started with just a Thanksgiving event, and it just morphed. We started partnering with great organizations and just educating ourselves more on it. And we really wanted to use our network. I came from a corporate background, so it was really influential people mm-hmm. that wanted to do something good and just make a significant impact. So how did you first get that window into this community? Where were you first seeing it? Where were you first coming across these kids who are in this situation? It started with a program in New York Cares. I volunteered with them for a holiday event, and we saw just children coming in. I was used to going to soup kitchens where I saw adults, and then Mm. I saw these families come in, and it was just a really depressing experience. And I was like, wow, there's this? And we just sought out to get more educated, uh-huh. so we started partnering with organizations in the Bronx right. and Brooklyn. Wow, so the numbers are pretty pretty shocking. I saw an article that said last year, it was a statistic that about one in 10 students in the city had spent time in temporary housing during that school year. Um, 20, uh, uh, nearly 24,000 every night spend yes. time in a shelter. Um, where, I mean, it, this, but this is a population that's unseen. We don't really recognize it, like you said, until maybe they come into a shelter. Um, what, I mean, tell me about the sort of the breadth of this problem and this issue. It's really huge. So, like you said, you have about 24,000 sleeping in New York City shelters tonight, but you have 100,000 homeless children enrolled in New York City schools. Wow. So, because right now, those statistics are just children sleeping in municipal shelters. But like you mentioned earlier, they're scattered everywhere. Doubled Hmm. up housing, which means they're living with family members or friends. Hmm. Um, You know, like it could be eight, ten people living in one bedroom apartment. Right. So maybe can you define homelessness? Because maybe that's where we get into these numbers and get a better understanding for what it means to either live in temporary housing, be without a home, be, Mm -hmm. you know, in a... So it starts in different ways. So the typical homelessness that people understand are the ones in the streets, Mm -hmm. the ones that you see, which are very different. 
Then you have the ones that are in motel units. Motel units are just where people go to temporarily. You have also the situations where there may be a domestic violence situation and they're put into these temporary shelters. Then separately, you have transitional housing, which is where we work in. Transitional housing allows us to work longer term with children versus motels where they may be there one night, one week. Hmm. Transitional housing is meant for the families to stay at least one year. Oh, wow. So that allows us to do a full developmental program with the kids for at least a year. Mm -hmm. But in reality, these kids are there for two years, three years. Mm -hmm. A group of our kids that just finally left last year were there for about four or five years. Right. So it's for really long periods wow. of time. I remember when I first started hearing about this issue and started to think about the number of kids who were enrolled in city schools who were coming from temporary housing or in, uh, in from shelters and places like that and thinking about the sort of the unimaginable challenges that they face. I remember hearing something about, you know, going back and how do they find a quiet space to do their homework. I mean, what kinds of things have you encountered or are you seeing in your work? So a big thing that kids, that people don't realize about homeless children is that they're at a huge disadvantage. So first of all, they're going through so much bureaucracy. So mm -hmm. in general, homeless children are missing out 20 days of school. Wow. In general, just because... For 20, days, 20 days of school year. 20 days, yep, in the school year. And that's because they're actually required to attend the meetings that they have to go through in order to apply for housing. Even for required to attend the meetings with their parents? Yes. Or if they're not with their parents? Are there some instances where they're not with their parents? They, they have to go with their parents. So uh -huh. their parent can apply for things without the child being there, hmm. which is really crazy when you think mm. about it. Like, these kids need to be in school. Right. But they have to go through this whole bureaucracy. So a parent could go from one place to the next trying to apply for some sort of support. They'll have to apply more than once, sometimes three times, to mm. be able to get into a temporary housing, the transitional homes that we work in. Do you know, is it because they just need to prove that they have these kids if they're trying to get services for their entire family, that the, the city wants to see a demonstration that they indeed have a family? We're still being educated on that piece, but my understanding is that things are in streamlines. Mm. We're overpopulated, there's mm. not enough housing, and things aren't streamlined at all. They're going to one place. The information is not up to date. Right. So we've worked to try to update information. So like on our website, we've updated the information to this is what you actually need to go somewhere. But it makes it really tough for people just because they don't have the right information. So mm -hmm. that alone is a big issue. Um, but it's just then you have on top of that that the kids are losing more school days because they're also being suspended. They're going through so much bureaucracy. They deal with so many different people. In the shelter alone, the children are known by number and not by name. Wow. So wow. that creates an identity issue as well. So being suspended because of discipline issues. Right. right. Because now they're, they're going through so much change. They've been uprooted. They were moved from their neighborhood where they had their friends, their family, mm. you know, and now they're in new locations where they don't know anyone. Some of the kids are being bullied. But you would guess the school administrators would know the status of these students. Is there any sort of special consideration for them because of what they're going through? The Technically, schools? they're not supposed to know which oh. children are homeless so that okay. they're not stereotyped. But mm. in the cases that they do know, the teachers do try to help. Mm. But it becomes very challenging because there's only so much you could do. As right. it is, teachers are already having to put out their own pockets to help with children with school. Right. So, um, and some of the schools don't have the capacity to handle it. Some mm. of the schools have a lot more homeless children than other schools do. Mm. So it becomes just like a big numbers issue and... Do we have the enough resources to cater to this one child? Right. There's also a big disconnect between the children going from one school to the next because they, when they move, they mm -hmm. lose their school as well because now it may be too far. 
Some parents try to keep them in it, right. but it's not possible all the time. I mean, so talk to me about the age range of these kids. Um, it was about, the, that you work with, about four to 15 years? Is right, that, okay. so our age group is five to 17, okay. but mm -hmm. ideally most of our kids have been four to 15. Wow, I have a four-year-old who is always asking for playdates with his classmates, mm -hmm. he's at pre-K right now. And I can only imagine a child who can't invite another child home to play with him. It's heartbreaking. Making friends is really one of the biggest issues with our kids, which is why they appreciate the Dare to Be programs, because we build community within the shelters. Mm -hmm. The shelters are very individualistic. People are afraid, as you could imagine, right? Mm -hmm. They're in the system. They have curfews that they have to abide by. Wow. And all the children are going through changes. A lot of children are angry. The parents have going through frustrations. So through the programs, they get to make friends. Right. So let's talk about that. Let's mm -hmm. talk about what Dare to Be is doing in the shelters and with the, this community. So we create a seven-step program that covers from equipping children with the basic needs, such as their winter apparel. You know, New York Cares will donate coats, but then they have no scarves or anything else mm -hmm. to keep them warm but as well as school supplies, there is great programs, say for example, Operation Backpack. They give them great starter packs, but then what happens to the kids the rest of the year? Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable, so we give them these opportunities. We also do academic enrichment, helping them guide them through their schoolwork. On top of that, we also have the career development piece, which as early as, people think that just because they're young, right. they don't need to be trained this early, mm -hmm. but it's amazing like when they start learning about career opportunities, when they go to TV stations or like this weekend we went to a pizzeria and they learned about entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and owning a pizzeria and all the behind the scenes, it gives them the opportunity to see that they don't <clears> just have to amount to be what they see, YouTube stars or mm -hmm. you know whatever social media is driving right. at the point or celebrities baking celebrity shows yeah. like bakers or anything like that so was well, it too early or can you tell us about any success stories that you guys have had it's amazing one of our most incredible stories is we had a 12 year old who had been with us for a, few, a while so when he turned 14 he got into the career development piece where mm -hmm. he learned about work ethics interview skills and all that great stuff and we ended up going to a career tour with the statue of liberty hmm. and he got a job there oh wow and so right. they gave him a summer job along with one of our other kids. And in that summer job, it went from two weeks, they extended it to six weeks, then eight weeks. They were okay. just so impressed with their work ethics. Wow. And then they ended up opening a full-time opportunity where they were able to share it and do it part-time until they graduated. Wow, that's amazing. And that was huge because not only did was it amazing for them thinking that they didn't have this opportunity, hmm. but then it influenced the parents and the siblings to step it up. Hmm. as well and that was just amazing and thanks to his extra income they were able to finally move out the shelter oh wow fantastic well so in the very short time that we have left can you tell me what can people do who may want to get involved who might want to volunteer donate contribute in whatever way to dare to be um, what do they do what kind of possibilities are there for them dare to be is in an exciting phase where we're finally expanding we're looking to get into more shelters we're in six shelters now so we need everyone's support whether it's professional talent at our office whether it's team leaders and activity coordinators on site mm -hmm. that you could work directly with the children or it's our advocacy program as well as our sponsors we're really looking for sponsors to be able to donate corporate sponsors small businesses and even individuals mm -hmm. so where would you direct people to go if they're interested in some of these opportunities definitely to our website dare to be nyc and that's dare numeral two letter b dot Dare to be, yeah, D-A-R-E, so -A -A -E, 
numeral the, two, letter B. NYC.org. NYC.org. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Roxana, for coming in and mm-hmm. telling us about this important work. Uh, and we look forward to having you back sometime. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. If men have received any attention in the discussion, it's been mostly about perpetrators. But what about when they're survivors? Of course, there have been some in the last year who've shared the hashtag and spoke about their experiences, but those narratives have been mostly on the margins because, of course, women have been disproportionately impacted. When you combine this lack of conversation space for men who've had experiences of sexual violence and a lack of a process for dealing with it, it can be problematic. This is what our next guest seeks to address in his new book called No Jewels. He's a poet, a singer-songwriter, and a Brooklynite. Welcome, Ty Allen, to 112BK. Thank you, sir. Um, so tell me, what inspired you to write this book? Um, it wasn't actually me. Uh, one of my elders, I had a book deal last year, uh-huh. and one of my elders, uh, Patricia Spears Jones, read part of the manuscript, and one of the poems, 9.5, was in that manuscript. Mm-hmm. And she suggested I turn that into a larger story, because there seemed to be a lack of story about men who have dealt with trauma in a positive way. Mm. I wasn't interested at all. It took me about a month to convince me to even do it. So that poem, 9.5, does that right. refer to an age? of, a, of Age and size. Age, was, right. age and size. Right. It's kind of a play on the word. Uh-huh. Don't and want to What was that poem? Talk to me about that poem. So basically about a young person who is being abused by um, an older female, mm-hmm. and a 9.5 being the age of a nine-year-old, mm-hmm. and a 9.5 being obviously inches, length type thing. So. Mm-hmm. Is a sexual reference while at the same time age reference. And that child was you? Actually, no. It wasn't? Mm-mm. Huh. Actually, I really, what was interesting about the story, I wanted to, I did personalize parts of it. Uh-huh. There, are sto- there are parts of it that are about me. All right. But I wanted it to be uh, a level of universality. So I would interview 10 people I know who had similar situations. Uh-huh. And I pulled their stories into one. Uh-huh. So I can reach more than just my context, but the context of other men. I see. Got to be other information, other stories besides my own. Mm-hmm. So. Can we talk about your experience? I don't give a chance. Yeah. I mean, so that that kind of was the inspiration for at least beginning this um, uh, investigation, I guess, right? Was your own personal experience. No. It really, no. Was, it really was Patricia. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, but in the, in the 9.5 poem. No, that oh. was actually a conversation of a um, friend who passed away. I see. Um, he never actually had to tell his story. Okay. And I actually turned that into, into a poem. Oh, okay. Well, so the, the title, No Jewels, what does that refer to? Well, I don't have an answer for everyone, mm-hmm. and there's also another double entendre. The whole book is full of symbolism. Um, I'm a former five percenter, and the idea of jewels or, or information or former five percenter Muslim. Okay, um, secular Islam. Mm-hmm. It was a way of referencing that because mm-hmm. jewels means information, it means facts, sure. it means a thought process or an, an, analyzing something and coming away with something positive or even negative. Uh-huh. I felt in this case. I really can't tell people how to change or find a process, but I can suggest if you have a trauma, coming out of it is as important as a trauma. Emergence is even more important than a trauma, to say that. So mm. there, was no, there was no answers, but there definitely is. Here, here the one jewel is trying something to make better for yourself. Right, so it's sort of, um, I mean, and who would you say is the target audience for the book? Initially men, <clears throat> um, black men, men in general, and then anyone with trauma, because mm-hmm. the story isn't, isn't encapsulated just to men or black men. Mm-hmm. We're, so many people are walking out here who need therapy, who need a hug, who right. need someone to talk to. And I was hoping that this book can start that conversation for others. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I see that it has. Mm-hmm. I was in Indiana, 
a young lady literally came up to me afterwards and told me I was telling her story. Hmm. And I ended up helping her get therapy. Wow. Happened at a, at a session at Pratt. I was teaching wow. a class. And the question the young lady was asking me was clearly a call for help. They were able to find the help she needed at Pratt. So it's, it's opening up doors for people. Mm -hmm. That's good. And so then um, you, you talk about that, and I read that, that you know, a lot of men walk around, they need a hug. But th those aren't readily available necessarily. Men don't necessarily accept or sure. seek out hugs. Funny, I don't take hugs. So. You, don't, you don't take <laughs> hugs either, but you recommend them for others. Right, so people, right. Um, but what about that? I mean, what about that, the fact that men, in the way we're socialized, you know, that we're not, we're not huggers? Um, cowboy syndrome. <laughs> I mean, it really comes down to that. The right. cowboy syndrome of super tough, super masculine. Right. Um, but then, super masculine, super tough isn't a toxic situation. Mm -hmm. It's the application of it. Right. If you constantly tell yourself you can't be something other than super masculine, super, super, super tough, and you start to embody it in the negative ways, yeah. and those negative ways become the the, um, the normal. Mm -hmm. It's I read it yet. Consistent chaos. If you mm. if you say it, consistent chaos, you start to believe it, it's the right thing. Mm. Kind of like someone occupying the Oval Office right now. I'm trying to have an idea you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mention his name on purpose. I, um, I try not to. But it's very similar in that that we mm. you're normalizing something that's not normal right. or not regular, I should say. But then more ways develop your, your normalcy. So mm. we're told you have to be individualist, you have to have the bootstrap mentality, rough and rugged, mm -hmm. and then having an emotion is negative. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when something happens to you that requires an emotion to deal with, because something traumatic happens to you, your emotions are there actually to help you get through the negative. To experience it, to right. feel it, and not right. to bury it. Because I think I'm a stoic, 100% stoic. Yeah. But I'm a stoic because I actually let an emotion happen. It's my application of that emotion. Somebody, some might think that is a contradiction, right? Not if you're really. stoic, that, yeah. you're, that you're suppressing things, that you're, you're, nothing's on but the then, surface. And that creates sickness, creates mm -hmm. bad skin, yeah. creates wrinkles. I'm not really into that. Yeah. But you notice you don't have any wrinkles. And I'm old enough to have more than wrinkles. I got a lot of wrinkles. I don't know if that's because maybe I bottle a lot up. <laughs> but see, that could be, you know, could be that. Mm -hmm. You still know that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so by having a, a concept that emotions have to happen, but it's execution of that emotion. Because right. I'm feeling the emotion doesn't mean I'm bawling because I'm feeling right. sad or right. I'm running through the lilies because I'm happy. I'm right. accepting the emotion, then moving on. Because uh -huh. their emotions are fleeting. So you, you had an experience where you were a, yes. a survivor of, of sexual, yes. sexual abuse, sexual violence, right? But when you started down this road, I think I saw you, you'd been interviewed where you said, um, that you didn't feel like you needed a catharsis, you didn't feel like you needed more healing because you had already gone through that process. Did you discover something else as you got into the process that there was still some residue? Well, <clears throat> no, actually. Hmm. I think I had the luxury of um, having, I'm a, what do you call it, black power baby. Mm -hmm. My mother was SCLC, my father was a um, black militant. So the information they gave me to deal with white supremacy is the same information and tools you can use for any kind of oppression hmm. or any kind of violence against you. So I used that kind of thinking. Hmm. One, what's, what's my, what's my um, part in this? Two, how do I find calm in it? And three, how do I deal or excise the problem that was um, affecting me? Hmm. I did all three. And I'm happy to have parents who actually didn't even realize they were building tools that hmm. I can use in other areas. I didn't realize that the tools were. I mean, when you're a kid, your parents tell you, you know, study this and do that. You kind of go, yeah. yeah. Then you realize later on, wow, those tools are really effective. Parents really know. So this book isn't, uh, you know, an explicit guide, you know, how to access those tools that you were able to access right. because your parents, yet it is speaking to individuals to help them with their own healing process? Yes. In, in, in what way? Um, one, to think that you actually have a problem. Mm -hmm. 
That's the first thing that's big on the table. Mm -hmm. um, that's the, the initial problem, that we don't know there's a problem. Right. Second is to not accept the problem as an end result. Mm -hmm. Third, find a way to believe that you need both self-love and self-care, which are two different things. Right. Self-love is appreciation, admiration, adoration. Self-care is actually applying that to something real. So if you have diabetes, you love yourself to stay alive, so you take your medicine. Mm -hmm. That's self-love. Self-care is also changing your diet, cutting out alcohol, not smoking, going for a run, seeing a doctor on time. So the combination of those two things create a process. Mm -hmm. Everyone's process is different. One diabetes candidate may just need to go exercise. Another one may do a wholesale change of how they live, maybe even need to, need to be an amputee of some sort. All these things are different for each, no, what I'm saying, each one is individualized. Right. So we have to figure out what that is. But the first step is really, there was a problem, I need to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. and maybe find solutions or processes. Right. I don't think you find processes on your own, though. Mm -hmm. And this will help enable that. Can you share, you have a little uh, a poem that you want to share with us? Mm. Actually, the, the last poem, uh -huh. I think, is the most important one to me. That's why I have it on the back of the book. All right. um, because I'm a nerd, I littered, I littered the book with poetry in different places. That's great. But um, the title of the poem is No Jewels, and I've never read it before, so if I messed up, it's your fault. <laughs> okay. We'll edit it. Right. Basically. Nothing to offer but remembers without wise of a fall I raked, bagged and placed on the curb, cliche close to the cans waiting for trash day. Yeah, not so bad. That's it? Yeah, it's real simple. Okay. Um, and so great. And so the book has been out now for under a year, right? Yes. Oh, it was a pre-release in the summer and okay. then full release in the winter. Where can people find it? Anywhere from Barnes and Nobles to Amazon to my back pocket to shows. Okay. So, and uh, also maybe Greenlight Bookstore. Not yet. Actually, we're working. We did the first digital um, executions first. Okay. And I'm on tour, so mm -hmm. it's been really great to having the book in different um, mm -hmm. distributions like Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and Kebble. Okay. And that led to really great sales and me getting just national tour I'm on now. Mm -hmm. The next step was this spring and summer to kind of do a large regional um, physical physical push. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually about to go back and work on a whole new book. And a cool thing about this, we soundtrack the book. Oh, right, so you, right. can, you can get a whole level of um, sure. music that attaches to it. That actually, if you read along while playing, the songs continue with the idea of emergence. It was not on purpose. Well, that's great. So I, it moves. I, I, did read, I did listen to some of the songs, and they're great. So I oh, recommend cool. it. Thank um, you. And you just want to uh, mention a website if people want to uh, go and find out more? So simply, tyallen.com. From there, you can go to any other um, distribution level from Tidal to Barnes & Noble. Right. So those listening and not watching, Ty, spelled T-A-I. T-A-I-A-L-L-E-N.com. And if you're really nice to me, leave a message. We'll send you the special um, book a special link that gets you a discount. So Great. Well, Ty Allen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Glad Appreciate to have you it. back soon. Thanks. Uh, so that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow, Jarrett Murphy will be back to talk politics with members of two organizations that affiliate with the Working Families Party. We'll hear about their latest endorsement and the fallout. And a conversation with a local journalist who connects the recent police killing in Crown Heights to fears of gentrification. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. 
Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>